Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. On Commons People this week. Will she have the backbone to send them to the back benches? Just what does Boris Johnson have to do to get sacked? This was a horrible one-sided deal that should have never, ever been made. Trump pulls out of the Iran deal. How dare they, Madam Deputy Speaker? How dare they to the McCanns, the Dowlers, all those other victims? And Ed Miliband, you won't like him when he's angry. All of this and more on Commons People. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast with me, Owen Bennett. And this week I am joined by Mr. Paul War. Hello, Paul. Hello. Hello. And I'm joined by Ms. Kate Forrester. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. I liked how you used my proper title. Ms. Ms. Yeah. yeah. Feminism. Thanks. Yes. Anyway, let's crack on, shall we? What does Boris Johnson have to do to get sacked? That's the riddle which has been occupying minds in Westminster this week, mainly because it's easier to understand than the post-Brexit customs arrangement Theresa May wants with the EU. Anyway, the Foreign Secretary used an interview earlier this week to declare that Theresa May's favoured customs partnership option was, and I quote, crazy, despite it still being technically a possible solution, to the post-Brexit trade conundrum. Jeremy Corbyn grilled the PM on Johnson's words at PMQs, and here's Theresa May's response. And I'll tell, I'll tell the right honourable gentleman what's crazy. What's crazy is a leader of the opposition who for years opposed TTIP and now has a policy that would mean Labour signing up to TTIP with no say in it whatsoever. Boris seemed to approach the whole row with his, um, his usual style, shall we say. Here he is joking about it in the Commons. And by the way, I'm completely, I'm completely in conformity. I'm completely in conformity with government policy on this, on the matter, I believe, which he is referring, uh, since that policy has yet to be uh, decided. Uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, what does Boris have to do to get... I mean, is it punch a small child, Paul? Is it? I mean... He'd probably get away with that, I think suspect. he would, if he sort of did it with yeah. a grin on his face? And I mean, the, the, the funny thing is that the joke when he was running for London mayor the second time was, it was a similar narrative, which is, what does it take for Boris to actually, his popularity to wane at the time was, you know. It turns he, out it's Brexit. That, <laughs> that, that he could be caught, exactly. But he could, at the time, he could have been caught with his trousers down, you know, rolling a joint off the back of a hooker and everything what? would have been fine. <laughs> He would have still got away with it. Because basically, let's be honest, in his private life, you know, he has got away with it. He's done that. There's various he, say, he hasn't yeah, done that, listener. But, but he has got away with various things that most politicians yeah. wouldn't get away with. Yeah. Uh, you know, he defies the laws of political gravity, there's no question, and has for a long time. Now, he finally came crashing down, obviously, during the leadership contest when, you know, uh, Michael Gove knifed him in the back and it seemed to be all over. But ever since he was called back by... Theresa May, um, he's effectively been unsackable, whether it's Iran, whether it's, you know, jokes about Libyans being dead mm. and, and, and tourist spots, you know, he, 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 she's shown no inclination to fire him. Um, now, I think part of this is simply because, obviously, she is 
uh, in a position where she can't throw him because she he, she knows he carries a certain weight amongst brigadiers in the party. That's obvious. But I think there's a, another psychological point. I think that actually Theresa May lacks ego. I'll put that out there. I mean, a lot of her close friends say this is the big difference between her and him, for example. Boris is all ego. Theresa is no ego. And boy, would you... That's a good thing, because boy, if you had any ego whatsoever and the way Boris treated you in recent weeks, as, as he has to Theresa May, you, you'd feel slighted, you'd feel affronted, you'd feel belittled. But actually, she doesn't really care. She's got this masochistic approach. She's, I don't really care about all that stuff. I, the most important thing for me is finding some kind of consensus on Brexit. And that is really, really hard to do. So when Boris says, as we heard in the clip, I wasn't going against government policy, because there isn't any government policy yet, she doesn't. She won't take that as a dig or an insult. She'll take that as probably a matter of fact. Well, he's technically right, I suppose. Well, she might take it as an insult, but it is also a matter of fact at the same yeah. time, which is that, you know, she really is to blame for the fact that there is no clarity because she put out these or agreed to these two options last August and there's been no progress on, on refining them down into one option since then. So she and David Davis are responsible for the fact that we'd still, you know, two years after the referendum, people who voted leave don't know what kind of Brexit they're going to get. And this customs partnership uh, model, when it was put forward last August by the Brexit Department, it was described as, by the Brexit Department, unprecedented as an approach, could be challenging to implement... Uh, and we'll look to explore the principles of this with business in the EU. Even in the document they put it forward to last year, Kate, didn't they? They were they didn't make up this was a particularly good idea. They said this is, you know, something that's never been done before. So maybe Boris is right to be a bit more sceptical about it. Yeah, and I mean, and also the thing that we still need to remember is none of these proposals, they've all been rejected by the EU. The EU have said these are unworkable but and the EU would anyway. do that, wouldn't they? The EU would just well, reject anything right now that's a negotiation, That's true, right? that's true. But... I mean, going back to the whole sort of Boris and Theresa thing, if you look at David Miliband did, I'm just looking at it now on my computer screen, David Miliband did an interview with The Guardian, I think it was 2008, that caused like a huge furore when he said about Gordon Brown's leadership then that um, there needed to be radical, a radical new phase for government. And that caused absolutely huge shockwaves. People were saying, you know, he's, he's making a very clear leadership bid. Um, and he, he later came out and said, you know, he backed Gordon Brown as a leader, etc. Et and he was foreign secretary, of course. He yeah. was foreign secretary at the time. But compare that to what Boris Johnson is saying about Theresa May's leadership now. And that is nothing, basically. Yeah. yeah. So it's quite, it's Small remarkable, fire, it, really. Compared to now. Do you think that Theresa May, obviously when she appointed Boris and at the time the other sort of two Brexiteers, Fox and Davis, it was, it seems to be very much a kind of, okay, you guys get on with Brexit. You wanted it, you broke it, you fixed it kind of thing. And she's been sort of dragged in and it's actually defined her perhaps more than she thought. Do you think that by getting rid of, by sacking Boris, would be kind of admitting that she'd failed in some way? Or I guess your point about her not having an ego, she probably wouldn't think in those terms. Yeah, I, I think she genuinely just thinks, right, after last year's snap election humiliation, and boy was that humiliation as we saw her, and, you know, virtually on the edge of tears that night. Everyone thought she would, she was ready to quit. Um, don't forget, that was the key period where she was ringing David Davis desperately to say, look, is Boris going to run? Is, is Boris going to topple me now? So that's the context in which you have to consider all this. You know, she she knows that Boris has a certain clout. But also, she, she kind of wants to put that to the back of her mind and she wants to just get on with it. The problem is getting on with it is very, very complicated. So this customs arrangement, whether it's uh, the customs partnership or the so-called MaxFAC, maximum facilitation, which was uh, dubbed last year, it was called a highly streamlined customs arrangement, which basically is just 
not being in the customs union, but just having loads of trusted trader schemes and their technology deal with it, which is what the Boris wing of the party of the cab of the inner cabinet certainly agreed to. These are the options that we've got. We're no closer to deciding which one it's going to be, but the the can is running out of road to be kicked on, isn't it? Yeah. Is there going to come a point now where Theresa May is going to have to make a decision? She might go to full cabinet in order to override the inner cabinet, where Brexiteers have a slight advantage if you believe Sajid Javid. Are people going to start resigning over this? Are we going to see people walking away saying, "I can't support this. This is not the Brexit that people voted for. I can't. I, I can't hold collective minister responsibility on this." Well, we've always said, haven't we, that that uh, one of the biggest uh, ways out of this is just to fudge it all. But the problem is that this looks unfudgeable. You know, it, they're, they're trying their damnedest to come up with a very, very complicated scheme, which even the Irish. Prime Minister Leo Varadkar suggested might be made workable one day, and that's given them a glimmer of hope. Um, but the, people like Boris and Michael Gove have been so strident in their opposition to this particular plan that it, it's difficult to see how it's going to get resolved without someone either resigning or the Prime Minister changing tack. And, you know, I think the real difficulty is that her history is whenever she's challenged by her Brexiteers, she backs down. That's what we've seen so far, and that's what's annoyed a lot of the Remainers in the Cabinet. And they think they haven't had a good shout at all. And if one of them were to walk, you know, what would happen then? Um, but I think the most likely outcome is that she may well just say, OK, you know, we're going to go for this uh, this odd scheme, which is called, you know, as you, you just said, maximum facilitation. In, it basically, it's very, very complicated. It will mean basically effectively erecting some kind of soft border in Northern Ireland. It will mean some kind of soft border at Calais. And, but it, it will be some kind of high-tech solution that they possibly could get round to in a few years' time. And at least you could say that's more honest. You could say that, look, we're, we're, we'll admit we're going to lose some jobs, we're going to lose some trade, we're going to actually maybe even have a real problem with Northern Ireland, we might have a bit of friction there, uh, but we'll just be honest, we've got to swallow all this. It's the only solution, there is no magic solution, because the only other solution is basically reneging on the Brexit vote and staying in. But the problem with, with that is that if one of the reasons why you voted Brexit was because you wanted to see a reduction in bureaucracy for small businesses, that approach is going to be even more bureaucratic. You yeah, you just, you just have to admit it. Got to be, is that, is it, is it is now it's a the price time, worth paying. Exactly. Sort of right. is, is now the time, Kate, for Theresa May to just be honest and just and just a bit of honesty and say, look, we can't deliver everything that that, that you want Brexit and you want Romania. This is going to have to fudge it. And, and if you want to walk, then walk. You know, it's kind of an amnesty. If you want to go Greg Clark, because you're going to cry about it. If you want to go Boris, you keep wanting it crazy, then just go. I just don't think she's in a strong enough position to be able to do that. Um, I mean, I think, thinking about the Boris thing as well, I think post-March 2019, she could potentially say um, to Boris Johnson if he was still unhappy, do you know what? fine resign do it yeah exactly but i don't think i just don't think until we get to that point in 11 10 months time that she can do anything drastic like that and also i think disgruntled remainers are going to be really bolstered by what's happened in the lords this week as well you know three four defeats in a single day on on the withdrawal bill and some of those on quite big issues like removing the exit day from the bill um keeping us in some kind of um, EEA arrangement effectively in a, in some kind of single market arrangement that's pretty significant and I think the likes of Nicky Morgan your Tory backbenchers are going to be are going to be bolstered by that
And I saw, uh, just finally, I saw Amber Rudd and uh, Damien Green in a very intense conversation mm. last night in Parliament mm. uh, as everyone was going away. So it makes you think, you know, a couple of, there's a couple of remainers already out of the cabinet in XL there. So, I saw uh, Amber Rudd this week looking very cheery, actually. Yeah, she, she looks Spring like the weight. Yeah, she really yeah. is. Yeah, weight's been to her shoulders. Anyway, mm. let's move on, shall we? Because having apparently brought peace to career. Donald Trump decided to move towards war with Iran this week. The US president announced he would be pulling the states out of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, a deal involving America, China, Russia, Germany, France, the UK and Iran, which eased sanctions on Iran in exchange for some scaling back attempts to develop nuclear weapons. Speaking in the White House on Tuesday, Trump described the agreement, which was seen as the key diplomatic legacy of Barack Obama, as a great embarrassment which had left Iran on the brink of acquiring the bomb. Here's a clip. At the heart of the Iran deal was a giant fiction that a murderous regime desired only a peaceful nuclear energy program. Today, we have definitive proof that this Iranian promise was a lie. But don't worry, there's not going to be a war. Boris Johnson's been on the case. Here is in the Commons. After closely interrogating everybody I could find uh, in the White House, in the White House, Madam Deputy Speaker, there is no enthusiasm for a military option in the United States, and there is no such plan. Johnson there. He spoke to people in the White House. He interrogated not, everyone he could find, he, he said. He, tour, Who was he asking? The tour guides, <laughs> the people in the gift shop. It, it was fantastic. Um, so, uh, I mean, should we be surprised by this quite seismic move by Trump? Because he has talked about it before, and his, his new security advisor, John Bolton, has, I think he wrote a comment in 2015 in the New York Times saying, just stop Iran's bomb, bomb Iran. And this is the guy advising Trump, so really, we shouldn't be surprised by this, should we? Well, also, he's, he, he don't forget, he's a politician, and he said, I keep my promises. Yeah. I mean, that was the, How's that, that wall going in Mexico? <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> um, but the, the, the funny thing about Boris, of course, in the, in the chamber you just heard there, is that uh, the great irony of Boris saying there is no plan B. Where's your plan B? Yeah, yeah. You can't do this leap into the dark yeah, without yeah, a plan B. A major agreement <laughs> like this, terrible. Uh, couldn't work with that one out. No, but for Trump, Trump has got a point in that Iran has been aggressively expanding its ballistic missile program, which really worries Israel. As we've seen overnight, um, you know, Israel's very, very worried about Iran's presence in Syria as well as in Iraq. And, you know, it's a it's a regional player, there's no question. The the fact that the Iraq war left this massive vacuum, Iran went in and filled it. It felt that it couldn't have instability on its border, um, not surprisingly. And and in you see this its influence in you know, in the Gulf in Saudi and also in Syria. So it's a big regional player. Um so far this deal has managed to keep it sort of away from nuclear weapons. And also, it's managed to keep the the moderates in power in Tehran. Um, you know, give them a reason to say, "Look, stick with us. We're getting results." Um, and that's the real danger: is that the, that the hardliners in not in America, just in America, but in Iran, could come out as a result of this. And I think that you've had a countless people saying what the dangers are. But you've got to say, maybe Iran will now have to sit up and say, actually, we should stop expanding our uh, ballistic missile program. We should sort of um, be more cognizant of what the rest of the region wants. Who knows whether or not it'll have that impact? Because to be fair to Trump, you know, he took a completely different diplomatic approach to North Korea. He's, you know, he's got some prisoners released. He's got the handshakes between the two, the two South Korean North Korea leaders going on. 
who's to say that you might not deliver uh, similar results in Iran? Because, hey, here's someone who's even more unpredictable than the Iranian regime. So all of a sudden, they're the ones having to go, whoa, we better play this carefully. This does not make me feel better. This is how <laughs> threads started with yeah. Iran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did it? Yeah. We used to, I watched that. I used to do, oh. side note, a bit of Owen Bennett biography here. We used to, I used to do, a, I did a module on weapons of mass destruction at uni and it was on Thursday mornings at nine o'clock. <laughs> oh my God. And, Worse uh, than this podcast. They used to show us, um, one week they showed us, it's on the video, this TV programme, Threads from the 80s, which is about a nuclear <sighs> attack on Sheffield, I think. It is brutal. And everyone gets like destroyed and deformed. And I was always massively hung over because it was always like, like before... I was just throwing up the whole time watching this, like, the form babies being born. You can't watch Threads on a hangover. No. And also, don't watch it on a Sunday night. Yeah. doesn't set you up for the week. You had no. a hangover on a Thursday morning. Yeah, because Wednesday was the night you went out for your sports. Big student. Oh, really? really? I didn't do any right, sports. Okay. I just went out. Anyway. I hope you're enjoying this, listeners. <laughs> Back to Iran. <laughs> <laughs> but on Iran, don't forget the one but, but, person but, who's been really, really yeah. hawkish about Iran has been Tony Blair. He was the one. Right, even in the Chilcot inquiry, when we were all listening to his evidence, our jaws dropped and our pens dropped. As he said, actually, he went even further. He said, all right, we've done Iraq. Iran's next. The, the big challenge. You should all be really worried out there about what's happening in Iran. And don't forget, Blair was as much a signatory to this nuclear deal as anyone else. Um, uh, and you've got to say that, that is Trump basically doing what, what, what Blair did, which was saying, look, Iraq has scared the region. And in the long run, it scared the region for the right reasons. In other words... People are now worried about regime change. They're worried about what will happen next if we don't obey an unpredictable, hawkish American president. So it's it's a depressing scenario. True, but I'll just counter that because you would. Some people would argue. Look, what happened in Libya. Colonel Gaddafi, who then uh, gave up his weapons of mass destruction, and then he was, you know, the Americans uh, and which aided in ousting him. So some people would say, hold on a minute, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't in the region. Is is that not caused? cause a bit of diplomatic confusion there. It is difficult. I mean, I personally think, ultimately, the North Korea thing is down not to Trump, but it's down to China twisting North Korea's arm and saying, look, you're going to lose. We've just agreed these massive new sanctions against you that money talks, really, at the end of the day. And, you know, North Korea was getting a little bit more wealthy amongst some of its elite, and they don't want to lose all their privileges and, like, cars and suits and everything else. Um, and it's basically the same with Iran. I think, ultimately, money will talk. And if that's, I think, why um, Trump's done this because he's by the threatening to increase sanctions make life even more difficult for the for the ruling elite in in Tehran he's basically saying well you know uh, you're going to lose all those privileges the problem with this is he's not giving any hope of what what the alternative solution is and that's why Boris Johnson and Britain and the rest are really worried about it and also he's not got any backing from the rest the other countries that are involved in the deal because Europe is in no way going to going to shift position is it everybody's come exactly so i mean trump though rather ominously or people in the trump white house were saying well that's because all these you know um uh, europeans have got all these massive contracts in iran and again it's all about money they were saying rather than principle it was the same with france and iraq before the iraq exactly i mean iraq and france are the biggest trade partners yeah and so you know finance is a big factor in all of it um let's do this week's quiz shall we yes atomic can't wait it's a quiz about nuclear weapons oh great uh, this is all according to the Federation of American Scientists. Good. Is this going to give got, me nightmares? They've got a webpage, so they're probably reputable. Reputable is the word. Reputable. reputable. The Question number one. The peak of nuclear weapons was in 1986 when there were 70,300 of them knocking about the place. How many? 70,300. People just got what, them in warheads? their shed. Uh, there's weapons, not all warheads, but just weapons as well. Okay. How many nukes are there now, Paul? Are there 25,400? 
Are there 32,100 or are there 14,200? So from a high of 70,000 30 odd years ago. Well, we did have the peace dividend, didn't we, after we did. the Berlin Wall fell? Yeah. I'd say it's the middle figure. What did you say? 20, 25,400? 25, I'd what go for that. I'm going to say 32. You're both wrong. It's 14,000. Oh, it's gone right down. Yeah. Yeah. How many countries are believed to currently have nuclear weapons? How many? How many? You're asking us a random number. Yeah. What, just a guess? Uh, we can work it out. That's right. Nine? 17. Bang on with nine. Nine? Can you name them? Oh. Can you name them? Uh, obviously, most of the authorised ones, but it's the unauthorised ones that yeah. are the tricky ones, yeah. like um, Pakistan, yeah. India, yeah. Israel. Yeah. Oh, yeah, North Korea would have to add yeah, now. North Korea. Uh, and then, US, and then the rest of the normal yeah, ones. Yeah, well done. Wow. Which countries have had nukes and given them all up? Ooh, very, very few. Um, but hold Four. on, I know. U- Ukraine. I was yeah. going to say Ukraine. That's Sorry. the only thing I yeah. bloody knew. Ukraine gave 5,000 back to Russia on the condition its territory was respected. Yeah, uh, that worked out. Fools. Three other countries have uh, given up nukes. Kazakhstan? All nukes. Pardon? Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan, yeah. 1,400 getting them back to... You know a lot about this, Paul. Yeah, <laughs> this is a bit, very uh, suspicious. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, Go on, two more. Who else? I can't uh, remember now. Uh, oh, God. This hey, is hard. Just say Scotland or something. Stupid. I wanted to say Ukraine and he well, stole you can't, it Well, okay, me. Kate gets the point for Ukraine. Yes. The other two, uh, Belarus, Belarus. Yeah. 81 uh, after the fall of the USSR, and South Africa. Which countries have American nuclear weapons to deploy and store? Hmm. So some countries have American nukes in their soil, which they're allowed to fire if they want. Well, we're one of them, obviously. Uh, no, because we've got our own nuclear weapon program. No, but it's it's American built. True. Trident's American off the shelf. Mexico. Um, no. uh, let's have a think. How many countries? Do you say which countries? Yeah, are many t- countries? Oh, you can tell me how many. Mm. I mean, Canada. No. This is obviously the it's European. So who? Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, I missed that bit. I didn't say European. No. Paul's just got excellent must, knowledge. Must be some Europeans. Um, There's five countries, four of which are European. Belgium. Yep. Yes. Oh, very good. Um, I'll tell you. Go on. Germany. Yeah. Italy. The Netherlands. And Turkey. Turkey. Mm. Turkey. And finally, how many nuclear weapons have been lost? Quite a lot, I would have thought. Um, good question. Is there mm. no ballpark figure? Uh, how are we, many? Are we gonna, you could say under 10, over 100. No one, no one knows. No one in knows. In 97, it was calculated that 11 US bombs have been lost and not recovered. Some say slightly there about eight. Um, uh, someone, the director of the Berlin Information Center for Transatlantic Security, said in 2008. It displayed up to 50 nuclear weapons. Scary. Uh, were lost during the Cold War. Oh, good. Some of them involved plane crashes, uh, some in Greenland, but one was lost in a swamp in North Carolina. Oh, I've been there. Yeah, that's where you're going to go for your, your... For my bunker. Yeah, no, yeah. it wouldn't. They've got n- lying around the no place. No point, is They get involved. God. Uh, let's move on quickly. Let's just talk about Leveson quickly, because uh, Ed Miliband blasted the government for breaking promises over stage two of an investigation to press regulation. In a furious Commons intervention, the former Labour leader said ministers would be letting down victims of phone hacking and other media intrusion if they went ahead with plans to cancel the second part of the Leveson inquiry. Here's a clip. And here we come along today, and we have the government saying, let's dump this promise. 
It's too expensive. It's a distraction. How dare they, Madam Deputy Speaker, how dare they to the McCanns, the Dowlers, all those other victims? How can we be here, Madam Deputy Speaker? I say to members across the House, what, no, I will not give way. I get, say to members, I say to, I say to members across this House, whatever party they are in, this is about our honour. This is a matter of honour about the promise we made. Very, very quickly, I mean, we've got another clip here of Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's basically saying, don't do it. I mean, you can guess what he kind of said. I don't want to play it. But Miliband, interestingly, he chose this as the hill to die on, Miliband, wasn't it? And he very he's, much did. I mean, yeah. I mean, you heard in the clip that he, he's been very, very quiet, didn't speak out about Syria, hasn't spoken out about anti-Semitism. These are like, accusations levelled at him. And yet Leveson, part two, he's chosen to really go to town on. Um, have the government betrayed people? I mean... This was made by previous Prime Minister's promise that Levinson 2 would go ahead. Surely it's got no, doesn't bind the ones. And it was in the Tory manifesto, they wouldn't press ahead with it. So. Well, that's the most important point. It was in the Tory manifesto that they wouldn't pursue this. So, you know, Theresa May was perfectly within her rights to whip her troops very, very strongly to vote against this. Um, but what was fascinating was the sheer number of Tory MPs who had to have their arms twisted to vote for this. I mean, don't forget what was a majority of nine the government mm, yeah, by. The and they relied on the DUP being offered a nice side deal about their own media regulation in Northern Ireland, plus some real arm twisting, proper arm twisting of, you know, people like Andrew Mitchell, um, Peter uh, Bone. Peter Bone. There were several well, no, of them. Peter Bone voted again, voted... Well, didn't he? Well, did he rebel? Yeah, did he? Well, there were several of them, like Mitchell, who didn't um, and had been expected to, and at the last minute decided, oh well, you know, I can't let Labour have this this victory. Um, and it was to, in a, to be fair, it was a testimony to the Tory whips for once who don't get much credit. You know, this was a really narrow vote. A lot of people thought that actually it came up almost took them by surprise a little bit, um, which was the whole point of Labour's ambush. Um, and only on the day did it look really, really close. So, you know, it, it's fascinating. You saw Andrew Mitchell get up and make a speech which sounded like he was going to vote against the government and then at the last minute decided yeah. not to. There was an interesting point where someone from Downer Street I was talking to last night said that when the teller whispered in Julian Smith's the chief whip's ear the result, they thought they'd lost it because Julian yeah. Smith just looked so great. But I can imagine he probably said the rebels went all the way from Peter Bone to Ken Clark. And you would have thought, oh my God, I'd be hundred actually it was just like Peter Bone, Ken Clark, Philip Hollibone and I think it's one of the Tories wasn't there. So Bill <laughs> Bill Wigan did Bill Wigan I think Bill Wigan changed his mind yeah, actually as well. As well. Um, so there's a lot of these Tory MPs. Obviously, a lot of them, people have been, they think they've been turned over by the media. Uh, I mean, Bill Wiggins is a good example. He fell out with his local paper. He was upset with the Telegraph over expenses. Peter Bone, you know, famously Mrs. Bone, you know, that, that was all exposed as a bit of humbug yeah. in by the newspapers. He also was turned over by uh, the Telegraph or exposed for what his expenses were. So, you know, you, you did have to swallow quite a bit of salt for some of this criticism for some of the MPs. But Ed Miliband has made it his mission. There's no question about that. And I think what does he do now that that mission's failed? I think he's made it his mission because I think he's very bruised by 2015. I think he thought he got a really, really raw deal from the media and he's not forgiven them for it. Yeah. It's as simple as that. You think he just feels like... Yeah. But can you blame the media for that election result? I don't think you does can. It, no, it, you can't. Does it look a little bit bad for Miliband's legacy? Ed Miliband, friend of the show, we had him on for 100 episodes and all that kind of stuff. So, you know... God love you, Ed, and you're a big listener. But people will look at it and say, you know, where were these big statesman interventions in other 
aspect of you know foreign policy or domestic policy you're choosing this one which some people will say you know it's a law that Max Mosley and Hugh Grant were brought in mm. well you can see why he thinks that it, he and Tom Watson don't forget are, are close allies on this they thought they could change the weather this was, this was sort of groundbreaking you know epoch um, uh, making decision about changing the regulation of the media they thought this this was finally up for grabs obviously it wasn't what I think some people would like Ed Miliband to do now now that this is dead is actually to really grip the anti-Semitism issue. Mm. You know, why has he not really led from the front in this? And he could rightly say, look, it's only since I ceased to be a Labour leader that there's been a spike in the number of cases that have been delayed and not sorted uh, and that some of this has been allowed to, you know, flourish without it being called out. And you can easily, he could say, not in my name, so why in your name, Jeremy? But I think the reason for that is he's so far wanted to be, he's wanted to stay on board with the Corbyn project. He didn't want to be someone as a backseat driver. And obviously the media issue doesn't involve that in any way. So I think it will be fascinating to see what his next big project is. I mean, he always makes great store the fact that he is one of the few people that can go into him and have a conversation with Jeremy Corbyn and then go into him and have a conversation with Tony Blair and actually gets the same kind of respect from both of them. There's very few people yeah. actually in Labour who can bridge that. Well, but maybe, you see, as um, a lot of the other former leaders, Neil Kinnock uh, and Tony Blair have, have focused on, and not yet Gordon Brown, maybe Brexit will be Ed Miliband's next big thing. If he actually does make a significant intervention in the Brexit debate, backing a customs union, backing single market, then maybe he will have more leverage than we think. Uh, just pausing now, because you finished drinking your tea, cake Because you keep coughing. Are you all right? I really need to cough. Go on then. <laughs> <coughs> Thanks. That's better. That's all right, good. Thanks. Um, very, very quickly, uh, local elections obviously were last week. Um, Labour won the most councillors, but Lib Dems won the most new councils. So mm. Lib Dems did well. Um, the Tories did okay. There's some people saying, "Why? Why are you saying that? Why aren't you saying that Labour won? That they got all these extra seats?" But actually, it's all about in this elect place in the electoral cycle, they should be doing a lot better. Is that is that quite why it wasn't sort of held up as a big victory for Labour, Kate? Yeah, I think so. And I think um, particularly the fact that they didn't take their big targets in London where Corbyn's vote should have been massively shored up was a big um, <coughs> a big blow to them. Um, and also, one other thing that I would point out is that in his statement um, the following day, Jeremy Corbyn said the Tories um, built up our expectations um, to an unreasonable level, particularly in London. And there was a piece in The Standard on polling day saying, basically an interview from Jeremy Corbyn saying we've got a really good chance of taking Kensington and Chelsea. So, not... I mean, I think there was quite a lot of, there were quite high expectations. And I think Labour is also responsible for those high expectations as well. And falling short of that was not a great look, especially I mean, in Barnet. We shouldn't play down the fact that obviously Labour, um, you know, have got a position in London now where they've entrenched their, their dominance. There's no question about that. Yeah. Of course they didn't win Barnet. That was a massive blow. But if you look at the historic low number of Tory councillors in London, that would worry the Tory party because that feels like a, a demographic shift, not just a sort of blip. Yeah. And that will really worry them. But what should equally worry Labour is places like Bolton, all the small towns that we've been talking about, the Lisa Nandy agenda, not the big cities, but the small towns, Bolton's, your Dudley's, you know, it seems to be UKIP, those former UKIP voters are not going back to Labour. They're, they're, they're on the gateway drug of UKIP and now they're, they're smoking oh, Tory. So, you know, is, is that's the worrying thing for Labour. A harsh mistress, the old UKIP drug, as someone who's uh, totally on that pipe myself. 
Not well, clean, not clean yet, are you? No, no. I still get, I still get cravings <laughs> of Farage. Very, 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 very quickly. In case you missed it, Kate, something very, very important you picked up on. Yes. Um, yesterday, um, the data protection bill. There was an amendment tabled to end the memorandum of understanding between the NHS and the Home Office, where we've done a lot of stories on it. They, um, the Home Office Immigration Enforcers, were able to request confidential patient data from NHS Digital as part of their investigations into people who are here illegally. Uh, there was a huge campaign by doctors um, and by MPs on the Health Select Committee for them to stop doing it because they said migrants were too scared to see the doctor and some were even uh, getting seriously ill. Uh, one woman even died because she didn't seek help for a persistent cough. Um, and now the government has said that it is stopping the memorandum of understanding, except in exceptional cases where somebody needs to be deported, etc., for a serious crime. Um, but campaigners have said... Um, they don't think, A, they don't think this would have happened if it hadn't been for the Windrush scandal and the impact that's had on the Cabinet. Um, and B, they think the government's been a bit vague in terms of the exceptional circumstances, so they want a cast-iron guarantee that nobody needs to be worried to see their doctor. But overall, it's a good thing. Excellent. Thanks so much for that update yeah. story you've been across, haven't you, Kate? I have. You've done yeah. very well. Thank you. Well done. Thank you. Good. And uh, right then, next week, Paul, if we're still here... Ferrana's God. Oh, enthusiasm. <laughs> right. Uh, hope you enjoyed it, everyone. Leave some little comments on iTunes, how much you love us, or wherever you get your iPod, your thing. Whether you're listening on, just comment and then tweet and all that. Hashtag comments, people. All right. See you later. Bye. 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 Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.